I mean, I became a therapist recently, you know, like I had a long life before I became a therapist and, um, actually like being a therapist and having like my like helping tendencies or like my like trying to figure people out tendencies be confined to a professional relationship rather than something that I do with my friends has been wonderful. Like before I was a therapist, I think I tried to like enlist my friends into like telling me their secrets and like kind of having some like attachment bonding things and um and now I just let them be my friends. <laughs> you still have that that energy or, or impulse, but you found like a good, a, uh, a productive direction to channel it in. Right. Yeah. Or, you know, it's just less messy. I think my friends kind of liked it, but it was like created kind of messy relationships to like be like trying to elicit that kind of closeness with people that didn't really have like the commitment for it. Closeness is a word that you would associate with friends, but it sounds like you're referring to something of a different nature. Maybe a a word you would have with friends if you had like secure attachment and you were like good at staying long friends with people for the long run. But when you just like are chaotic, like I was when I was younger, you like make friends and then, and then it feels too scary. So you stop being friends. So it's just like a hectic kind of like, chaotic place to be or it was you were using your sort of attempt at analysis to attempt to strengthen the bonds yeah or something i don't know if i had that much like um you know purpose to it but i think there was well i'm not saying there's forethought and i'm not saying it was conscious necessarily but it, it sounds like there's a little bit of that subconsciously and that like you're not and that it's hard for, you know, that it was, and it sounds like you've improved, that it was difficult for you to form an emotional attachment with somebody and attempting to sort of get to the bottom of something or to like, you know, crack them open and see how they worked could potentially be a useful tool in maintaining yeah. a long-term friendship. Yeah. Yeah. When did you go back to school? Um, Oh my God, I knew you were going to ask me like date related questions. It's fine. I mean, <laughs> we, we, we don't, we don't need exact dates, but you said it was recent. It was a pre pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. I went back to school in my mid thirties or something. I had to finish my undergraduate and then I went, did my master's in there in counseling and I graduated in 2017 or something and became a therapist then, you yeah. know, recent in some ways, but that's a long time ago now. <laughs> right. I'm just like stretches and shrinks. That's so bizarre. Like the pandemic just really like destroyed a sense of time. 2021. I think I, I, there was a, I went to a thing for work in San Francisco and I saw a lot of my coworkers who I hadn't seen since prior to the pandemic. And I was <laughs> talking to one of them and I said, Oh, um, such and such was, you know, a couple of years ago. And he said, add, two years to every number that you give because we've just completely erased two years of our lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's a big part of the difficulty of processing time. It's not like we weren't doing anything, but like we weren't doing any of the things that we usually use to measure the passage of time. 
Yeah. I mean, my last five years have been bonkers. Like before the pandemic, I had emergency brain surgery. And for a year before my brain surgery, I was like, had a headache and was like lying in bed. And then like, and then I finally was able to travel like a year after the brain surgery. And I went to Australia. And while I was there, they had their first COVID cases. And then I came back. And then, you know, not too long after that, we went into lockdown. And then a year after that, I had spinal fusion. And then I was in in bed for that. And so it's been like, the whole time has been like really bizarre, really surreal. Yeah. And I like, but I also like bought a house and like, there's parts and like, you know, I'm doing something I love doing for work. And so like, that's really exciting. But like, before the brain surgery, I had to like cut everything out of my life. Like I just wasn't able to do anything. So I like quit writing the zine. I quit playing music. Um, And I just made my life a lot smaller. It's been a weird time. How long had you been doing Doris for at that point? I mean, I started it in like 93 or something. And so that would have been, you know, a long time. (laughs) Pushing up on 30 years. Well, I guess, I guess it'd be 30 years this year, right? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. I'd sort of run out of things to say. I'd say like my last, I used to do it like in the beginning, I would do it like every three, like three times a year. And then the last few issues I only did like maybe one a year, if even. And, uh, I kind of run out of things to say. I moved to the country, like I moved to rural Ohio, um, like in 2010 or something like that. And so much of writing the zine had to do with like being in an actual community with other humans and like talking to them about ideas and like kind of developing those ideas and then, you know, writing about it and also like, modeling like sharing secrets and kind of like trying to broaden what we talked about in actual like face-to-face life and so when I moved rurally and there was just like nobody to talk to I kind of ran out of things to talk about or to write about and then I was like getting older at the same time it's not like I don't have things to talk about as I get older I'm like definitely kind of more interesting now than I was then but Yeah, the novelty of it. I mean, I wrote a lot. Basically, I wrote a whole lot of stuff already. So I was going to ask if that was a difficult decision to quit, but it sounds like you kind of, to a certain extent, it naturally phased itself out. Yeah, I think it, like if I hadn't had the brain surgery, I think I still would have quit writing Doris. I was trying to put together an issue and it just wasn't coming together. On the flip side, Brain surgery is one of the most interesting things you can have. <laughs> true. Yeah, true. I suspect a lot of people have aversions to reading about medical issues. Yeah. I have really, like, really deep-seated anxiety, so I, I kind of get that, you know? Yeah. Whether it's, like, hypochondria or just having, like, an extreme discomfort. But it, but obviously, and it especially seems the case to be the case in the zine community, it is a subject that people often tackle in, in zines and in self-publishing. That's true. One of the first scenes I really 
loved was, uh, I can't remember what it was called now, but it was about this person wrote it and she had like had to have her legs amputated or feet amputated from, I think it was a train hopping accident. I can't totally remember, but it was, you know, about that. And it was super powerful. So, yeah. Obviously a long time ago now, but what made it so powerful? I'm trying to remember. I mean, this was like early Riot Girl or pre-Riot Girl, but it had that sort of like fierce, like reclamation of womanhood vibe to it, you know, that was, you know, I don't have to fit this normative female beauty standard to be like a powerful, like sexual, sexy person. And then it was also about like amputation. And I feel like it was like kind of a little bit twisted and dark. I don't really remember. Some people deal with that sort of thing with humor. Some people really kind of lean into it, but you definitely need some kind of coping mechanism when you're going through some major health crisis and life change. Yeah. Yeah. So you went pretty quickly from realizing there was a major problem to suddenly being in surgery. No, I mean, I think it was like eight months. You said emergency surgery, which led me to believe that like, Oh yeah. Well, I was like in bed with a headache for like eight months and my doctor just kept giving me different migraine medications that didn't work. And, and then, um, my vision started changing and then I thought it was like the migraine medication that had changed my vision, but it was, so then I was like, went to the eye doctor to get a new prescription and she was like, you need to go to the emergency room right now. And then it was like three days of testing. And then they called me in for blood work and admitted me on a Friday and did like emergency surgery the next day. So it was, you know, prolonged and then emergent. It's probably overstated the degree to which, you know, people refer to zine, zine specifically as being being like diaries almost. Or mm-hmm. I talked to a lot of musicians and, you know, the notion of of music as catharsis, like songwriting as catharsis, I think can also be a little bit overstated. But mm-hmm. when you were dealing with this very serious thing, and I, I mean, I, I would assume life-threatening because, you know, that's sort of the nature of brain surgery. Um there wasn't any desire to kind of write your way through those feelings? Mm. No. I feel like I didn't use the scene. I mean, I used Doris to like work through feelings, but not so much in the moment. It was more less of a diary and more like a way to, process things that were that were still like fueled you know like we're still emotionally fueled and that I felt like other people would benefit from having some kind of like frank and emotional but beautiful and like curated kind of language around it you know um like there's definitely like some fruitful material I could have written about, about the brain surgery, about like being in pain and like, like just the role of caregiving and like how fraught caregiving is like in a family system and like with partners and friends, how fraught like receiving care is or wanting care and not wanting care. All that stuff could have been super fruitful, but uh, my head hurt. <laughs> Something that doesn't get talked about nearly enough. 
this, this is not, not at all comparable, but I, I went through some health issues at the beginning of the pandemic. I, I had Bell's palsy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's the first time when, you know, I've ever been confronted with like somebody like, you know, like fairly, fairly serious. Mm-hmm. And I, and I know, I know you've written, I know you've written, uh, a bit about masculinity and I actually ended up reading that bell hooks book, like because of some of these things I was thinking about at the time, but, um, I'm really bad at asking for help. Yeah. And I don't know how much of that is individual to me. I don't know how much of that is just some sort of like, you know, societal norm, but I, I really, it's scary to think about yourself as being helpless. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a societal thing or at least, you know, big swaths of society are pretty in America are pretty like untrained in asking for help or even when help is offered to receiving help. Such an individualistic society. I guess you had to navigate that because, because you had to, because you, you needed help. Yeah. I could have done better. (laughs) At certain point, it's clear that you can't, you just can't survive. You can't have brain surgery and then not right, yeah, have definitely. somebody there to help you through that process. Absolutely, yeah. What was the recovery process like for you? I mean, the neurosurgeon was like, you can go back to work in two weeks, but um, I could sit up in two weeks. <laughs> I could quit taking the opioids in two weeks. Um, but it still hurt for like another month or so, and then it just didn't feel quite right for like a year. I mean, I, I think another societal aspect of this too, and again, something that I experienced on a much smaller scale, because I was going, I, I, I got Bell's palsy right at the beginning of the pandemic, and it took me getting sick to actually take time off yeah. from work. It's that conflicting thing, because obviously like you, you, you want to be well, and you want to be able to be in a position where you feel comfortable doing those things, but also we need to figure out how to take advantage of having time off and, and figure out how to heal. Yeah. 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 The obsession with like getting back to work is wild. I'm a proponent of taking time off and healing. Like for yourself or for others? Both. I'm in Florida right now. Oh, what? Well, that's, (laughs) Let's talk about that. Do you have family there? No, I'm at this, um, like a sort of like residency. It's in this old punk house I used to live at. I see Angela Davis behind your head there. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's pretty cool. I like it for reasons kind of different from what they advertise, but it's like this old punk house that's been here forever. Like I lived here briefly in the, maybe late nineties, but it had been here for a long time before that. And they've turned it in after like this big hurricane that happened a little while ago, they sort of got some money from the hurricane and then um, like fixed it up and have turned it into like an artist residency, but also like a, they're like archiving sort of Pensacola punk and radical history here, which I think is really like a cool element to it. 
yeah, to build like some continuity between like what people have done before and for the people that are doing stuff now, because there's so much like quick turnover in terms of like the punk scene and people being disconnected from like what the people like five years or 10 years or 20 years before were up to. So it's nice. The scene here seems to be like pretty, it creates like a lot of multi-generational connections that seem cool. But anyway, I'm here and it's nice. And um, yeah, I took a couple weeks off work and going to the beach, got a wetsuit, went swimming in the ocean for the first time in a long time. I had very severe burnout at the end of last year to the degree that I, you know, haven't really dealt with. And I'm, I'm from California originally, but I'm from Northern California. So it's not a, you know, especially sunny or or warm place. Mm -hmm. And you hear, obviously, you know, people tell you, oh, you got to, you know, go outside, get some sun, get some vitamin D. Mm -hmm. It's something that you implicitly understand. But, um, but I found a, I found a very cheap flight and a very cheap Airbnb in Aruba. I went to Aruba Mm -hmm. last year yeah, yeah. and, you know, and I swam in the ocean and I got sun and, it was like, oh yeah, no, this is, you know, obviously they were right. Like, <laughs> yeah, obviously, like this has like a very profound effect on your mood. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in the beginning of the pandemic, my friend um, Catherine found this like community garden that had been abandoned, like a couple blocks down from our street, and we turned it into. Like we revamped, we revamped it. We couldn't find like who to ask permission for. So we just did it. And I used to help my sister on her farm. So like, I know about like producing food, like in a more effective way than it's usually done in community gardens. So we like turned the garden more into like a food production garden and started growing food for the food bank and stuff. And just like having that project, like both to like be outside to like, even if it wasn't sunny to like be in connection with like the elements and be growing food and be in the dirt. And it made like all the difference, you know, are you in New York? I'm in Queens. Yeah. I'm in, oh, I'm in Astoria. Yeah. Which was not a good place to ride out a pandemic. No, turns out. no. Yeah. Pittsburgh is like, there's so much nature that it was like a pretty perfect place for it. Wait, you were in Pittsburgh at the beginning of the pandemic? Yeah, that's where I live now. I lost track. I, you mentioned moving to rural Ohio. Yeah, I moved away from rural. I lived there like 2000, whatever. To I think you said 10, yeah, earlier. 10, yeah, 2010. Yeah, yeah. And then I moved away in 2017 or whatever to Pittsburgh. For whatever reason, like I, I, I always associated you with being in like someplace in Ohio that I'd never heard of. Oh. It's probably a product of like the first zines of yours that I picked up were probably written around that time. So I just sort of associated with you with that. Oh, yeah. I'm from the Bay Area originally, and I had a similar experience when when I moved out to New York and realized that Aaron Comic Bus lives out here of just like, oh, that doesn't, no, that's that's not okay. Like, it's it's not okay that you don't live in, you know, Oakland or Berkeley. Berkeley, Yeah. Yeah. It was a weird disconnect for me to realize like, oh, yeah, this person that I feel like I've spent decades reading fairly personal thoughts from and, and, you know, feel like I'd sort of like not know, but like know a lot more about them than, than most people because of this. Like it, it didn't make sense one to like find out that he's living in Brooklyn and two to like, you know, it's like see him in person and actually have encountered him after all that yeah. time. Yeah. 
Yeah, he finally found his place in the world in New York. You develop these like ideas of who people are, and they're never really active. Yeah. <laughs> so what brought you out to rural Ohio initially? I can't say that word, rural Ohio initially. Um, let's see. We'd been living in Asheville. My sister and I moved to Asheville like before Asheville was like the hellhole that it is now when it was like still like mostly abandoned and you know there was like a thriving like black owned area and like just really different than what it is now. There weren't that many tourists. We moved there then and then we lived there for like a long time and it started to become like just way more expensive and fancy and just not like not really like super sustainable for us and she moved out to California for a little bit. I was taking care of my grandparents. She wanted to move to rural Ohio. There was like some land preservationist projects going on down there. She's like a clinical herbalist now and there's like it's the most diverse um Southeastern Ohio, the section of it is like where the glaciers stopped and before the Appalachian Mountains get big. And so it's like, I think it's like the third or fourth most biodiverse temperate area in the world. It's bizarre. So there's all these like endangered medicinal plants that grow like in abundance there. So she wanted to move there. I didn't want to move there particularly, but, you know, I wanted to be with her. So we moved there. In my mind, at first, I was like, I'll live in Pittsburgh half time and like on this land half time and um, make it work. But she bought some land and it was beautiful and it was nice to live someplace and not get evicted and, you know, be able to create a home. Yeah. I'm So you spent seven years there. So it sounds like it worked out for a while. Yeah, more or less. <laughs> I I had some sheep, I had some miniature horses, I went back to school and um yeah, did a thing. I had some really big music fests. I had like three really big music fests that you put on? Yeah, like I had this one. I had a um Okay, so I was like against marriage, right? I was just like and people kept getting married and like they would have parties. So people tend to do that. I know. They would have like weddings, you know, and you'd be like, oh, come to my wedding in, in New York or my wedding in New Orleans, you know, and I was always broke. Like, um, you know, until now, I pretty much had never broken the poverty line until a couple of years ago. So I didn't have the money to go to New Orleans or New York for the most part, you know, for weddings every couple months. And I got like, and people would just be like, it's not about the wedding. It's about celebrating our friends, you know. And I was like, yeah, if I ever grew, had a party, like, n nobody would come if it wasn't a wedding, you know? So I threw this, like, party, housewarming party. It was, like, my final attempt to burn all the bridges in my life. And I invited, you threw a like, spite party. It was a spite party. And I invited, like, everybody I knew and their bands to come play. And then everybody came. And so it was, like, then I had to be, like, okay, I love you guys. I can't burn my bridges. <laughs> So it was like a spite party turned into like a love fest. So it was it was really fun. And um then I had two more of those. So it was a good time out there, you know, it had its challenges. Why were you actively trying to burn bridges? 
I don't know. I'm just like, I don't know. I don't know. I think I was just kind of spiteful at that point in my life. I had quit drinking and like, I don't know. I just had a hard few years in terms of like figuring out what it meant to have friends and what it meant to like be connected to these different communities and what it meant to like move around a lot and like try to stay connected to people or not. This is confusing. I mean, it's like a spite party. I wasn't like, I was kind of just trying to be like, I'll show you guys like what hypocrites you are. <laughs> I gave up drinking, I guess it'll be four years ago in May. Um, and I'm definitely, I'm definitely one of the lucky ones. It didn't, it wasn't especially hard for me. Um, I don't really talk about it that much because of that. I feel like it, like, I don't, I don't want to, obviously I don't want to like make people feel bad about their, about their struggles, but I mean, certainly in New York, there's a huge social aspect to drinking. I mean, that, that's just like how you socialize in, in the city. So did, did you feel like by not drinking anymore that you were kind of cutting off a potential connection to people? I mean, I started drinking. Yeah, like I started drinking when I was like, not till I was like 26 or something. And then I started drinking pretty hard, pretty quick. And a lot of my friendships were pretty like drinking heavy, you know, like not like they were dependent on drinking, but like we drank together, you know. And yeah, I didn't really know like how to hang out with people without that that well for a long time you wrote a book about quitting drinking or you interviewed several yeah, people I did a zine, filling the void yeah because when i quit i didn't really know other people that had quit i had a really hard time with it and i love hearing it when people don't have a hard time because i was shocked how hard of a time i had and so maybe it was like four years later or something i interviewed anybody I knew that had like quit or my sister interviewed some of her friends that had quit. And I interviewed just the few people I knew and, and put a zine out about it. It was really interesting. Everybody had really different approaches and styles and experiences. And I feel like, I feel like the zine has been super helpful for people. It's out of print right now, but I do hope to put it back in print someday. That's a very clear example of you using your writing and you using your zine to, to process something, you know I mean? It sounds mm-hmm. like it was really useful for you to to talk it through with other people. Yeah, for sure. And I didn't write like about my day-to-day like trying to quit drinking while I was trying to quit drinking in the early days when it was just like every day was like pulling nails, you know, and like I had to like have a friend go to the grocery shopping with me so that I wouldn't buy beer or like, you know, I moved somewhere rurally so I just like wouldn't be around anybody and wouldn't be tempted. Like I didn't really write about that stuff until like this interview, like three or four years later when my sister interviewed me, when I was trying to quit drinking and I was still working on my zine, I wrote about other elements, like what else was coming out because I didn't have alcohol in my system. Like 
what was happening psychologically in terms of like my own relationship with my trauma history and like the way that my psyche had kind of fractured and developed. Like I wrote about that and that was helpful. So you start drinking, you know, I guess relatively later in life. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like you kind of suddenly you're like, Oh, I found the perfect coping mechanism to deal with all this trauma that I've been through. Like, this is like, this is it. It's like, it's, I mean, was, was it, was it self-medication for you? Yeah. I mean, partially, I mean, yeah, obviously it was, it was that, but it was also like, I was like, oh, wow, this is like a social lubricant. I understand why people do this now. You know, like before that I like hadn't, I was super socially awkward in my mind and had a hard time like connecting with people like that I wasn't sleeping with. And I, I like, there were like these groups of people, like it was actually like Aaron's friends, his, his little group of people. And then like my friend Ian and his friends and they, it was like, they had these like friendship groups where everybody was sort of like move as a unit. You know, they would like do stuff together all the time. They would like sit on the curb shoulder to shoulder drinking. 40s together you know there was like this physicality to it that I really like I was like I want to I want to be part of this you know like I want to feel like part of a a group or a tribe you know and so the only way the only places I saw that was with um people that were drinking uh significantly so I was just like I guess that's what I'll do was that part of what attracted you to zines initially was realizing that like Oh, there's other there's other weirdos out in the world like me. I mean, I started before I started writing a zine, I was like pretty heavy in the anarchist movement. And um so I I grew up in Minneapolis, then I moved to Vermont and I worked at um this place called the Institute for Social Ecology that was very into like the social political elements of anarchism and like how to organize society in a different way and how to prefigure a new world that was like sustainable ecologically and interpersonally, like how do we undo hierarchy, like oppressive forms of hierarchy in our governmental systems and have like more direct democracy. And how do we create like ecological technologies that can like create a new society so it's actually like the sort of philosophy has gotten kind of a bad rap, but they've, they're doing like modeling, like in a, what is it? I keep wanting to say Kosovo, but that's not right. Kuwait. I can't remember, but there's something like with a K sound, something with a K sound that's been at war and that's like outside of Syria or part of Syria, maybe anyway, embarrassing that I'm forgetting, but they've like ex- they're doing this experiment of society successfully out there so that's exciting although they're getting bombed and at war so it probably is a little stressful but anyway i was part of that and then i i like moved to back to minneapolis and there was like this very thriving anarchist scene there and i was part of like an intellectual anarchist kind of community or like political collective and then there was like profane existence that did like the punk anarchism and there was love and rage that was like the sort of activist anarchism and um so it was part of that 
And then I moved to Portland and got into like food, not bombs, kind of like lifestyle activism stuff. And that was fun. Like that was like the first time I like lived collectively. And I knew it was like not as revolutionary as like I was supposed to be like, as like I had kind of conceived of like anarchism being was like, this was sort of more like a little reactionary, not food, not bombs as an organization, but like just the people that were involved in Portland were extremely reactionary and divisive, but it felt really good to be like part of a group like that, like to feel like, um, just like an intimate connection with like a whole bunch of people that were like all living together and doing projects together. And that's kind of when I found out about zines. So I read like Comet Bus and Snarla, which was like Miranda July and um, Joanna Freeman or something. This person who I think is in, um, what's it called? Not Bikini Kill, but Kathleen Hanna's other band. Wait, are, are you talking about Scam? No, no, Erica. No, okay. no. Okay, no, she's, yeah, she's in uh, uh, La Tigra. La Tigra, yeah. That's so funny, because, like, she's, uh, I like, yeah, that she's also in a Kathleen Hanna band. Yeah, not anymore, though. Oh, okay. I'd... Um, anyway. Anyway. Yeah, so, Snarla. Like, um, oh, Hessian Obsession. It was, like, so good. But I think it was by Quiddy, who I think was in, like, Behold the Prophet, No Lord Shall Live band. It was like an Olympia band. Got into those there. And before that, I had been like trying to write like fiction and political articles. And like women didn't really get published at that point. It felt like, you know, like the New Yorker, it was like maybe one tenth of the stories in the New Yorker of the fiction section were women. You know, it was like, very not very equitable it seemed it just seemed like a doomed world to try to like be a writer and so zines you weren't wrong yeah (laughs) gender or no you weren't wrong it is not a yeah yeah it was just like yeah you have to like i don't know what like go to cocktail parties in new york to like get published or like have daddy has to own a publishing company or something you know (laughs) that's how it felt um and maybe it's true i don't know but uh, yeah, so zines are like, I was stoked on them because of that. And it just seemed like a really fun, kind of exciting place to experiment with, with writing and create the creation of like an underground of like a different kind of ethical way to like be involved in the world and to like put forward like new possibilities. I don't know if that makes sense, but it was before, before I started drinking. <laughs> to, to come to your answer. Which is like, you know, which is, which is so linked to writing for so many people. I mean, it is like, it is such a romanticized part of the process. You oh, know, all God. these drinking like, was like the opposite of like, for me, I was like, Oh my God. Yeah. Just have to like, I mean, if anything, like writing is what kept me from being like a hopeless alcoholic way earlier, because like I would like, you know, drink for a while and then I would like have to sober up in order to write like writing while drinking was like 
garbage, just useless garbage. I know for some people it's like not that way, but that's how it was for me. It's that thing of like, you know, you come home drunk and then you sit down to write and you think you're like Jack Kerouac and then you oh, like yeah. read it later and you're like, oh no, this is this horrible oh, yeah. stream of consciousness garbage. Mm-hmm. Like it, but, but it, it does like, it doesn't in, in the same way that it sort of emboldens you or removes some of those constraints as far as socializing with other people. I think it also removes certain inhibitions about writing or making art, but the end result is often not very good because of it. <laughs> True. Yeah. You're in this punk house right now, but are you still in spite of not doing the zine anymore? Do you still feel connected to those communities? Yeah. Do I still feel connected? That's a good question. I mean, yeah, definitely. Like, like I don't go to shows that much anymore, but I mean, who does? It's, you know, um, you know, some of my clients are, are like punks are punk adjacent. And, you know, it's like, I love being their therapist, you know, because like, I just imagine them talking to a different therapist, you know, describing like their shitty punk houses. And like, I imagine they're like middle class or just like normative therapists being like, you need to move out of that house. That sounds really yeah, like dirty. He, oh, you know? he chose to live in squalor. <laughs> right. You know, or like, or like, they'll be like, yeah, I'm, I, I went on a date with a clown and I like know what they're talking about. Like clowning. It's like this underground, um, kind of punk adjacent kind of subcultural thing. And they're just like, (laughs) what other therapist would like know what that was, you know? So, um, like I love, I love being like a a therapist for the young punks and yeah, I don't know. I love like watching my punk friends like grow up and be like still really connected in different ways. Like not necessarily like going to shows or making punk music, but still being like doing really weird and cool stuff. So I still feel connected to it in that way. And it is a thing that a lot of people grapple with, with getting older is determining which things you did in life out of some like just arbitrary principle mm-hmm. not for like not not for any sort of like concrete or tangible reason yeah it's funny because this also relates to cognitive behavioral therapy in a way of just like setting these like arbitrary ideas and sticking to them um and, and recognizing that like for most people you know people who are in that scene like there's a certain amount of compromising you know or changes to your thought process that that do happen over the years and 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 you do do these things that you know 5 10 20 years ago that you couldn't have imagined yourself doing mhm yeah i was never like a hardcore like punk i mean i was like played in plenty of punk bands and like wrote this like you know influential punk scene and everything but you know, like I remember I was just writing about this actually, cause I'm working on this like sort of memoir right now. And, um, I was, I remember when I moved to Berkeley, like green day had just signed, you know, like Dookie had just come out and like, I had never listened to punk. I listened to like the Indigo girls, you know, or like Ani DeFranco. And so 
I was like all bummed about like anarchism just being like such a shit show. And all the, the punks were like bummed about Green Day selling out. And I'm just like, I'm like, okay, like we're both bummed. So like we can hang out, you know, but like, why, like, why is, what is like the deal with selling out? Like, you know, in the seventies feminist movement, they had this debate about like, what did it mean to like be a, like to use power versus like being corrupted by power and like, where was that line? And how did you like walk that line? And was it to just like refuse to be in the spotlight or was it to like be accountable to how you use that spotlight? So, you know, that's where I was coming from. I was like, I mean, signing to a major label, like who cares? Like it's about like what people are doing or not doing regardless of like where they are, you know? But, like, the kids, the punks I was hanging out with, like, they didn't feel that way. Like, they had some kind of, like, hard line around it, you know? All that stuff. Like, I was never really, like, hard line about it all or, like, didn't really relate to that much. But, you know, I'm sure I was hard line about other stuff. It's funny that you were, you know, because I, I, I used to go to Gilman. And, you know, there, there was definitely this sense, like, at the time seems to have changed mostly, but like the sense of like, I swear to God, if, you know, Billy Joe ever steps foot in this club, like, you know, he's getting a beat down. Or, oh, I know. Poor Billy. <laughs> it's funny, you know, it's funny that you mentioned the selling out thing because I, and I, and I think about this a lot in the context of like kids growing up now where there's just like, th- th- that concept doesn't really exist in the same way. Right. Yeah. Yeah, man. It's wild to see like, you know, cultural norms shift and just like suddenly like that's something that I think probably a lot of people looking back at don't necessarily understand why they felt the way they did about that at the time. Mhm. I mean, it's like I understand. It's like we wanted to create like a protected cultural community and like have We want our thing to be our thing. Yeah. And to not be like subverted by capitalism, like it just had done to like every other social movement, you know, it's like fucking Che Guevara t-shirts. Like we didn't want that, you know, like we wanted something that could stay real and like be an inspiration for like revolutionary social change. But the fact is, it's just like, that's not what's going to do it. Like whether Green Day signs or not, it's not like what's going to bring about the revolution or not, you know, like, that's not the, that's not the, that's not the fight, you know, like the fight's like way more complex than that. So I don't know. Yeah. I would liken it to, to climate change in that like, yeah, like I think everybody should recycle. Like, I think that's a great idea to recycle, but I don't think that any person's going to move the, like any, you know, any, any non-billionaire person is really on their own going to move the needle at all. Right. Yeah. Yeah, like our lifestyle choices is just like a panacea. It's a drop in the bucket compared to yeah. all these other bigger issues. Yeah. But you were, I mean, it, it sounds like, you know, and, and you know, certainly like I understand this having read your stuff, that above all, it was important to use this platform that you had as a platform to get some of these ideas across. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of funny. Like I used it in the beginning, like, as a platform and also just sort of something to do in the meantime until I figured out what else to do. So it's kind of funny that that like became the thing I do did for so long. That's a very common story I find. Yeah. 
So yeah, I like to use like my position for good, you know, and also like to have fun and to have something to do. It was a combination. Yeah. It's nice to see that you were, you had been writing about prison abolition for so long. I feel like that's something that people are finally talking about now, but like I had, um, separately, I had Billy Bragg and Wayne Kramer on the show and they're both like really, they're big prison abolitionists. And yeah, yeah. You know, then the question I asked them is just like, cause it seems to me that, I mean, obviously there's a lot of work to do in a lot of different places, but that is kind of the last taboo for a lot of people. Mm, Prison abolition. I guess sort of the, you know, this kind of like overarching idea that like people are in there for a reason. Mm. They did it and that they did it themselves. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's like, if you look at prison abolition, like we just get rid of the prisons immediately. Like that leads people to like have a really strong like backlash against it. But you know, prison abolition is more complex than that, like most of these things are. So it's like, how do we create a society where prisons aren't needed? And how do we like work towards that and like stop funding carceral programs? You know, it's sort of like same with like police reform, right? Like, you know, so many of the reforms are like pouring more money into police departments, like more cameras, like more diversified departments, you know, and this most recent killing or probably not most recent at this point, because I haven't read the news for like a week, but you know, that department had all those reforms, like it had all that funding, like, and you know, like people that are on the prison abolitionist side of things are like, no, don't fund the police. Like this was the Memphis one. Yeah. The Memphis. So like, don't, don't pour more money into the police stations, but rather like pour that money into creating different forms of response that aren't police response for people that are in mental health crises and like, you know, a whole array of like different kinds of more community oriented um, assistance for people that are in crisis, which is what most, you know, I was, the other thing I was about to write about, I have to kind of review the history, but when I was in San Francisco, I don't know how old are you? So you might remember this, but you might not. But when I was in San Francisco, like, you know, I was like a gutter punk for a little while. So I was like in the tenderloin, you know, on the street all the time drinking. And at that same time, like the managed care and the insurance companies like started and all the mental institutions, you know, they were as problematic as they are. They all started getting totally, um, like defunded. So there was like no mental health care. It dates back even further though. Cause I mean, a lot of that was like, well, Reagan was still governor. There was a, a huge defunding of a lot of those. Oh yeah. Maybe. I just remember like suddenly there being like way more people like on the street, you know, and like way more homelessness and mentally ill people like on the street kind of coinciding with some major healthcare thing. I don't know. I have to look into it. I have to like, re-remember what that was all about but it's just like what gets funded and what doesn't and like how do we create a structure where instead of pouring the money into places and prisons and new prisons we pour the money into things that actually work and actually help people like live and thrive in this world 
the big question, like the overarching question with all this stuff is always, um, you know, you, cause you were talking about anarchy and maybe anarcho syndicalism, but, but, but like sort of like, you know, these ideas of planning societies and that, you know, in certain, in other areas, like a place completely devastated by war, like there, there's a way in which like you can't start over because you have to start over. Right. Yeah. But the big question is, is what are the first steps, you know, and, and, you know, and, and, and what can be done? I mean, you know, I don't know, to me at least things feel more helpless in a lot of ways than, than they used to. Oh yeah. Totally fucked now. They seem used to seem like there was some possibility and now it's just like, what do we do with the fact that there's like no fucking possibility, you know? Like, what do we do with that? I don't know. I struggle with it every day. In in your own small way, you know, what, what did you feel like you could do? For example, writing about prisons, what role, what, what, what did you see your role as being in, helping further some of these ideas. I mean, I'm not sure I've really written that much about prisons or prison abolition. I mean, I, I like the idea that I have, but um, I don't think I really have. I mean, it may I be have, disproportionate, but that's okay. well, I mean, if not, not prison specifically. I think it's funny. I hopefully you'll find this funny too, but as an aside, there's, there's an interview with you on YouTube. Oh yeah. You're like sitting on a table video interview and there's like there's a couple of comments and one of the comments is I can't believe you wrote about having abortions I'll never read your stuff again which is like what did you think <laughs> like what did what did like who do you think this person was and like what did you think you were reading Oh my god yeah I mean yeah I would say like for instance I'm trying to write this memoir now in my mind it was going to be like a political memoir you know and now that I'm kind of like coming towards the end of it, I'm like, okay, this is actually like more of a memoir about like love and <laughs> sex and, you know, trying to navigate like life after abuse and family and where's my mommy, you know, <laughs> I'd say those were like the major topics of Doris that made a difference to people were like about consent and just the complications of like being a human in this world and like, sexuality and being sexual or not and like all that stuff and like love and how complicated it is and like mental health. I would say that was like my main topic. I don't know where I'm going with this. How did you feel like you could help people through your zine? Oh yeah. Well, I, I hoped that like, by writing about things that like weren't socially acceptable to talk about that people would have more space to talk about those things. Like whether it was about things like sexual abuse and sexuality and love, or whether it was about like wanting to, you know, like have fun in this world instead of just like being, bummed out all the time you know I feel like there's like I don't know how it is now but I know like when I was in my 20s like there was a real like you just talked about certain things right you talked about bands you liked or you talked about you know I don't know what but it was how you related to other people right 
but I wanted like the ways we related to be like more broad. So like to help people be like, Oh, I can talk about like my family. I don't have to pretend I don't have a family or like, I can talk about like this weird thing I saw that like gave me so much joy while I was on the bus, you know, just like random beauty in the world. Like I think I helped people like feel like they could leave their houses and search for like beauty and enthusiasm. Like I gave permission to people to like love this world, even though it's like falling apart, you know? And I think that was something I really wanted to do and did do. Um, And then like taboo subjects like abortion and um, like trying to reclaim the body and being a girl that looked like a guy and stuff like that. If there is hope to take from this, I don't know, fairly helpless moment, it is that a lot of the things that you are talk that you talked about then and that you're talking about right now are at very least that, that people feel more comfortable speaking about them, you know, whether it's abortion or consent. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. And like all the gender, like expressive, like just how much more gender expansiveness there is now. I mean, we couldn't have imagined this. I mean, there's this terrible backlash for a reason. It's because like we won in a lot of ways, you know, or are winning in a lot of ways, but hopefully we can like keep it going, even though the world is crumbling and there's like the rise of fascism, you know? (laughs) 